this is an axe. I say this for the information of those of you whose television tubes may have burned out. I wish to reach the widest possible audience. regular retro horror and sci-fi podcast specifically for television programs. My name is Andy and with me today are the hosts Allison. Hello. And Drew. That's me. And here we are. <laughs> <laughs> this period we are discussing Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which has been a long time coming for the podcast actually. I think we've been intending to do this for at least a couple years now. Um, we talk about classic macabre horror not maybe not so much outright horror that there's some interesting twilight zone sci-fi stuff that happens but uh it's it seems to me a little more grounded usually but i think well within our wheelhouse for sure and just a you know just a joy to watch i love going back and watching these shows from like the 50s uh, and early 60s they, they they just they literally don't make television like this anymore so it's interesting to watch I like that you said that our podcast was irregular. Are irregular. Because that could be that it's not regularly scheduled, or it could be that we're just a bunch of weirdos. Mm. So I think it works on multiple levels. <laughs> but yeah, like like Andy said. I don't know what you're talking about. This is, well, this is <laughs> weirdos. our first episode of 2022, so congrats, everybody. Happy New Year. We and, made it. Uh, you'll notice Val isn't with us for this episode. She will be back for future episodes, but she's not able to be here this time or for our next upcoming episode. So we miss Val and hope she'll be back with us soon. Before we get into details about Alfred Hitchcock Presents, as usual, there will be full spoilers for the episodes that we cover. Yeah, these came out in 1955. Um, You've had a chance. Mm -hmm. I think these are available to watch through Peacock TV online and usually not too hard to find, I think, streaming mm -hmm. most places. But we covered four episodes from season one, and I'll just say what the titles are now in case you don't want them spoiled and you want to check them out beforehand. We watched Revenge from October 2nd, 1955. The very first episode. Yeah, episode very, one. Yeah, very first one. We watched uh, episode three, Triggers in Leash, from October 16th. That one has Darren McGavin. Nineteen fifty-five. Yeah, we'll get to that. I'm just letting people know <laughs> what we what we are covering just right off the bat, so they know what's being spoiled. Mm -hmm. And then the other sister, which I believe was episode seventeen, from January twenty-second, nineteen fifty-six. And finally, we covered and so died Ria Buczynska. Yes. Um and. I neglected to write down what episode that is, but I will let you know when we get to it. So that one aired February 12th, 1956, originally. So those are four episodes that we're going to cover tonight, and we will talk about the plot in depth and mm -hmm. spoilers ahead. Yeah. So you've been warned. Yeah, Alfred Hitchcock, it is like, this television show was iconic 
And I think most people know the famous title sequence where you see Alfred Hitchcock's silhouette and then it's outlined in ink. The classic theme is titled Funeral March of a Marionette. And that's just... It's perfect. It's, yeah, it's so good. And one of the things that made this show stand out from, say, um, like the Boris Karloff hosted show Thriller or from, I mean, the Twilight Zone is also iconic, so I don't know if it's fair to compare the two, mm-hmm. but Drew is showing me that the final episode that we cover is episode 20, so for anyone keeping track at home. <laughs> 1, 3, 17, and, and 20. 20. All mm-hmm. from season 1. Yeah. So a pretty good selection of season 1. Yeah. The, the... So, so anyway, um, back to just kind of a general overview um, all the episodes were in black and white. They started in 1955. They ran until 1965. There were 361 episodes total, but the last 91 episodes were actually titled The Alfred Hitchcock Hour. And one of the things most people remember about this show is that Alfred Hitchcock, even though he didn't direct every single episode, um, he would host it, sort of like your horror host, and he would show up in the beginning and the end and for commercial breaks making these like little darkly comedic comments about either the story or about the necessity of listening to the sponsors and it's just it's something that's really really fun and something I remember even enjoying as a kid I used to actually watch this in reruns when I was a kid um, over at my grandmother's house because she was a Hitchcock fan and loved mystery and macabre. And, and I don't even remember specific episodes, but I just remember loving the theme music and the intro and loving seeing him come on and kind of like tell these funny, funny jokes and also making fun of the sponsors. You know, I think he was doing that before most anybody <laughs> else was. And, and he was, he was a famous director, so he'd get away with it. And another thing of note was back when they wanted to make Psycho, um, which was released in 1960, the studios didn't really want to back the film. They thought it was going to be too violent, and he wanted to do it on a lower budget to compete with some of the more, what he considered schlocky horror films of the day, but like make a really good one. As, you know, what he wanted to do is show that if you were talented, you could make something on a lower budget and make it grand. Yeah. And so they used the production crew from the television series to make Psycho. Mm-hmm. So there's a fun tie in there. Mm-hmm. So before we get into specific episodes, had either one of you watched the show before we watched it for this? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was on Nick at Night back in the day before TV Land existed, before streaming existed. Um, but yeah, mainly all I remember it was the intro and the silhouette and the music and like that was kind of so iconic that it just got spoofed by everything yeah cartoons everything you know but yeah yeah if you were a kid growing up in the 80s or 90s that that definitely got spoofed in you know animaniacs rugrats whatever whatever cartoons were being aired at the time they had at some point a reference to this show right um yeah, this is my first time seeing it i'm familiar with alfred hitchcock through some of his movies in the 60s um but uh, I am by no means an expert, and this is my first time watching this, so it was interesting. I knew it, of course, by reputation. I knew it was kind of you know like a murder mystery sort of thing. I was not quite sure what to expect though, um, and I was uh, delighted mostly by by what I encountered. Um, but I I also you know love the original run of the Twilight Zone, and this is very much in that vein. And uh, like Allison 
and Drew say, you know, he, he comes on in, in between the uh, the episodes and makes a couple jokes. He's a he seems like a fun guy. I like him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think there may have been some people who worked with him over the years that did not feel that he was a fun guy. But I remember yes. as a child seeing him on TV and thinking he seemed like you know your funny smart aleck great uncle or something. You know that you would enjoy seeing him make little digs at people at a family dinner. <laughs> right. Well, this is kind of before I ever watched any Alfred Hitchcock movies. This is what I just knew Alfred Hitchcock of. Mm-hmm. And like, I remember, I don't remember what my first Alfred Hitchcock movie was, but I remember seeing an Alfred Hitchcock movie and I was like, why didn't it start with like, I just figured it was going to start with the so silhouette with the of silhouette him and walking out. in and the music. <laughs> and I was like, wait, it's is this an Alfred Hitchcock thing? Because it doesn't have Alfred Hitchcock introducing <laughs> the movie. What's going on here? You know. That's funny that you say that because I remember watching, I think it was a making of Psycho documentary. And they had quite a bit of interview footage with Pat Hitchcock, his daughter, who's actually in one of the episodes that we're going to talk about tonight. And she was also in Psycho. And she was saying that prior to the making of the television show, people were not, you know, it wasn't common for people to know what directors looked like. They knew right. what actors looked like, but they didn't know what directors looked like. But he became a household name, and everybody was familiar with his face and his, you know, his very famous silhouette. Yes. And so after that, people realized, oh, wait, he has a habit of being in his films in a cameo. Mm-hmm. And she was saying that originally... It started in the silent era as a necessity if you had all hands on deck. So sometimes the director's just in there doing something in the background. Mm. But then it became this kind of tradition where even though it wasn't he wasn't needed anymore, he would just be there. And so it, the fun thing would be to look for Alfred Hitchcock, like, where's where does he show up in this? Mm. And so she said that because Psycho, you know, it has this big twist and pulls the rug out from under you like 30 minutes into the movie... He wanted to make sure that his cameo was right at front in the beginning so that people wouldn't be, they wouldn't be looking for him in the midst of getting caught up in the storyline. He didn't want to pull people out of it. You know, once, right. once things got rolling, he wanted you to be all in mm-hmm. with the story of Psycho and not distracted by trying his... to find him. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's not also, where's Waldo, you know? Well, yeah, also yeah. like if he just suddenly appeared, it's kind of humorous whenever he shows up. Right. You know, like he's in the birds and he's got little, I think a little pair of lovebirds in a cage in that <laughs> yeah. one. But he just, when he shows up, you get delighted and he wanted you to be tense and scared at a certain point in the movie. Mm. And he didn't want to disrupt the flow. So, um, but it, it wasn't really an issue of people getting excited to see him and even knowing he was there until the television show because then he was in everyone's living rooms. You right, know, right. So. He, would, he would just look like another extra before people knew what right, he looked like. Right, right. Which is, is so strange because these days, I mean, everybody knows what the popular directors look like, you know? I mean, they're, they're, when it, you know, they're doing press gigs, they're talking to people, they're promoting their movie, they're all over the place. Right. Um, so yeah, you know, when Quentin Tarantino appears in his movies, it's, it's obvious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But I, I think, I mean, I don't think necessarily that Alfred Hitchcock was the first director to do that, but he kind of made it He, a he perhaps thing. did it best first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. That that sort of conscientiousness, I think. Uh, uh, um, but the, the forethought of it all, though. The, yeah, yeah, the forethought of it. Uh, how, how to construct a movie and how to keep the audience's attention so yeah. that they're, you know, they're built up. I think that that's, you know, that's sort of a, a hallmark of his because... He, at least in the movies I've seen, he likes 
to kind of really key in the tension and he knows how mm-hmm. to do it and when to like back off and make things lighter um and that's if i may say so that's a, that's a tie-in for our first episode because it's the one that he directed it is and yeah. his, his fingerprints are all over it too it's <laughs> Honestly, of the ones that we watched, I noticed the camera shots in it the most. Yeah, it was very cinematography wise, it's the best shot one. So, uh, the first episode, which is the very first of the series, is titled Revenge. And as I said before, it originally aired October 2nd in 1955. And this one was directed by Alfred Hitchcock, and it stars Ralph Meeker as a man named Carl, who has a lovely wife named Elsa, played by Vera Miles, who was in Psycho. And this would be five years before Psycho would come out, but to get young, beautiful Vera Miles, who plays a very psychologically fragile dancer who has had a breakdown, and they're, uh, they've moved to a little coastal town, and they're living in a trailer on the ocean in this little trailer community, and kind of living the young newlywed life. And... So it's this uh, Black Swan's Weekend Away? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen Black Swan, so I couldn't really attest to that. Another psychologically damaged dancer. Right. But anyway, so it's it, it has this, you know, kind of a cute premise, which you would think, oh, this is really nice, you know, the young newlyweds and this cute little trailer by the ocean, but it has this dark undertone because she's, had this breakdown and they're there so she can kind of recuperate and we learn a little bit more about her and he is he works as an engineer and he's off at his job during the day and she's a home alone in the trailer and friendly with the neighbors but not not you know she's spending most of her time alone and he comes home to find her in total distress she's basically in shock yeah. Like cuddled on the floor in the right. back bedroom. There's a cake burning in the oven. Yeah, the, the radio. I, I just right. figured she was dead when yeah, he first came. Yeah, in, you know. And we learned that she has been attacked by a salesman. Um, well, she just she kept says, saying he killed me. Right. He killed me, which for a while I thought like uh, supernatural something. Maybe she's actually dead, but he's. Yep being haunted by her and now he's gonna get revenge because the title was revenge on yeah. the guy that killed her and he's gonna everyone's gonna be like she's not talking she's dead you know but mm. no she's not dead she's just in a weird trance yep going over and over again that he killed me yes and of course the first thing he does because this is still back in the day and we've spoken on this on other uh other uh, things we've covered have done this, where he just gives her liquor right away. <laughs> yeah, right away. She's, she's You're in, in shock. shock. Quick, here's some liquor. <laughs> have some, right. some booze. This will calm you down. <laughs> so before we get too much further, I, I neglected to mention that the story for this was written by Samuel Blass. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, and it was adapted as a teleplay by Francis Cockrell. But yeah, so, so Vera Miles' character as Elsa, she's She's in the state of shock, and she's describing this attack that happened. She's saying that a salesman, or someone posing as a salesman, came to the door and kind of um, was trying to force her to buy stuff. And when she said she didn't have any money, then he physically attacked her. Mm -hmm. And the police come, and a doctor examines her, and they don't really find anything physically wrong with her. Yeah. And just her mental state is shot. And so 
It leaves one to question nobody there was one person who thought they saw a man walk through the trailer park but nobody saw anybody go into her trailer mm -hmm. nobody heard the attack so no one can verify that this happened and there's not like really physical evidence of it so you're kind of left to wonder but she has a carnation clutched, clutched in, her, in hand. her hand yeah like maybe he, he was wearing it yeah tucked into his lapel or something and so maybe an attack happened but i've always i've seen this episode a few times and i always wonder if an attack happens mm -hmm. at all because she just or if it was a traveling salesman he was just doing the old get the foot in the door and you know was being pushy and then she and was she yelling like and attack, she had yeah. a panic attack and clutched the carnation and then fell on the ground and <laughs> well they were never told really what led to her nervous breakdown in the past that right. caused them to move so one can't help but wonder maybe she was attacked in the past and sure. yeah. she was traumatized by someone being pushy but maybe we don't really know and it's yeah. not explained which is fine honestly it's not the point of the story yeah. what we've told you so far about it that's about all you know yes so that and they have a neighbor in the other trailer who's a nice little old lady yeah she seems nice yeah <laughs> that did, also didn't see anything well she no. wasn't home when the attack took place. although she kind of had a disapproving look when uh the wife what's the wife's name anyways elsa. The, elsa when elsa does her sunbathing she's got her like what would be then a very skimpy bikini mm -hmm. she didn't approve of that <laughs> you know i think yeah i think she was concerned that she was showing too much skin right she said well you're definitely a dancer <laughs> yeah it was a backhanded compliment basically <laughs> But yeah, so so then the husband basically says, oh, if I ever find this person, I'm going to kill them. Yeah. He's, he's responding with violent urges, which I understand. Somebody you love has been attacked. You're definitely going to have those kinds of feelings. But he, in, but this definitely informs his behavior for yeah. the rest of the episode. Yeah, and you, you see him, he's kind of brooding on it because the cops aren't doing a whole lot because there's not a whole lot to go on. Right. Because so, um, right. all they have is a carnation and a description. And, and, and a man in a gray suit. Right. You know, like, oh, description like, of a man in a gray suit yeah. and she has a carnation in her hand. Yep. And then not a lot to go on, but there's there's a really great shot that um, that that took me by the framing, and Drew Drew explained before it happened that the the shot was framed in such a way so that you could lean in and be in the center. But at the establishment of it, it's there's just a blank space in the center of the frame, and it's framed by um, Ilsa in the foreground, the husband like leaning back with an angry look on his face in the background, and uh, on the on the left of the screen and on the right of the screen, there's a nightstand with a bottle of booze in it, mm -hmm. and it, it it just it just sets it up perfectly. And then you know, like like Drew says, he leans in to like come over and talk to his wife, but it's it's visually it's it's so strange that how long has it been? Seventy years, almost seventy years later, that that's. Like, the, the language of cinema has not changed that much. And no. You can still see this sort of thing. It's still a contemporary-looking shot. It's, it's very mm -hmm. much so. Um, and it also establishes, you know, this husband has been drinking and smoking, like, chain-smoking cigarettes right. next to his... It sets a very distinct mood on yeah. that little trailer. Yeah, you know... you know, And it's a little is. trailer, too. So it's just like <laughs> he's sitting in a room looming over his wife, smoking cigarettes and drinking booze all night. Mm-hmm. The trailer, by the way, I, I can't remember which one you mentioned it, but they're they're sleeping in a pretty small trailer. But because this is the fifties, they have separate beds. Yeah. So. Oh yeah, I think you had to do that to get your your show right. on TV. Yep. yep. Well, I mean, Hitchcock had to he butted heads with censors sometimes, and he had a lot of pushback because they show a toilet 
in Psycho. Yes. They don't show someone using a toilet, but they show a toilet, and the toilet is flushed. My and goodness. they had to fight for that mm-hmm. in, to get that in Psycho. But because... people know what happens in toilets. Yeah, you don't need to show a toilet. Well, it's implied. Even even Norm, the character of Norman Bates, he won't say the word bathroom when he's giving the tour, you know, mm-hmm. to, of the hotel room where the murder will take place. You know, he's he's showing he's showing her the room in Psycho, and he says, and there's he just kind of gestures, yeah, because he can't say it. But it's also like his hang up is funny because it's also the hang up the censors have. Yes. Like we don't talk about the bathroom. Makes you wonder if the censors are all psychos. Oh my goodness! There you go. I bet you there's some artists out there that are trying to get their work out there that would tell you that they are. Yeah. <laughs> well, and when they tell you, like, you got to have two separate beds for a married couple or you can't show a toilet on screen, you really start to wonder about these people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I understand not psychos. wanting to show people using the toilet. No. But, but you're not going to show a married couple using a twin bed either. No, that's you a know. different type of yeah. film. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh... So... <laughs> So it's not on TV yet. <laughs> Carl is driving his wife around because it's suggested that they go stay in a hotel somewhere, and so they decide to go to the next beach town over. And, and they're just going for a drive to clear their right. clear the air, you know. Before they leave town, though, they're driving around, and she looks out the window. She's very much kind of in this trance the entire time in the car, and every time he suggests something, she just kind of says in a monotone voice, "Yes." that would be very nice and just looks straight forward like she's yeah. almost catatonic and so all of a sudden she becomes animated when she sees somebody walking by on the sidewalk and she's like there he is there's the man and and you know they're in a moving car and he's not this person's on a moving sidewalk and it's bleeding and the husband doesn't say are you sure or anything like that he just parks the car right he says grabs a which one you know and then yeah. she says that one there yeah. you'll be so, fine if i leave you in the car for a minute right mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah sure so he parks the car you see him grab a uh open end wrench mm-hmm. underneath his seat because you know you just have one of the seat well, he's you know, the for, for working yeah. on the car you gotta work on the car sometimes yeah. i got wrenches in my uh, car it makes sense yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh i got wrenches in my car i'm telling you it's <laughs> totally normal and then he follows this guy into a hotel room pops into the elevator with him yep the guy's like oh what number would you have he's like oh after you <laughs> I'm going to three. Oh, me too. Oh, uh, how convenient. Yeah. <laughs> it follows him down the hallway, and he doesn't, like, ask him anything. Nope. Doesn't Did... confront him at all. Doesn't say, like, are you a salesman? Mm-hmm. I think that would be you a know? real easy question to say, oh, hey, I noticed your bag. Are you a traveling salesman? Just to try. And if he says no, mm-hmm. or, or he just says, oh, you just got into town today from such and such place and you know that's not the guy but he doesn't yeah. do any kind of recon to figure just out takes no. catatonic his wife doesn't you know doesn't Word wait for this for guy it. to go up to his room after he he knows he finds out what room this guy's staying in he could have just asked the hotel concierge be like i need to call the cops on your phone you know i'm mm-hmm. gonna stake this out i, I got this guy he could have easily done that. Right, well, he could have just made a phone call and said, a person just, that my wife identified matching her the, the description is right. staying here in this room. Please come take a look at him. Yeah. Calls the guy immediately into the room, and from around the corner, you just see the shadow play of yep. him 
whacking him over and over again in the head with a wrench. Again, classic Hitchcock, sh- you know, manages to show you this brutal murder without showing you a brutal murder. It's really well shot. Yeah, yeah the whole thing is really beautifully shot. And then he calmly leaves the hotel, mm-hmm. gets in the car, starts dri- driving, drives away with his wife. In the meantime, the maid discovers the grisly murder not too long after he's left. And I guess somebody saw him because you hear sirens approach towards the end. Yeah. But he is, you know, driving her to the next town, trying to chat with her. And then she looks out the window and sees people on the sidewalk again and says, there's the man. There he is. (laughs) And he realizes that That she's just spotlighting any man in a gray suit now. Mm -hmm. Any gray suit is her attacker. And again, it leads me to to think that maybe there was an attack a long time ago or something and mm-hmm. that she's just re-experiencing it in her head and that there possibly wasn't ever even anyone at the trailer. Could be. Yeah, um, I mean, the husband did say earlier that he was worried about her being alone all day with nothing to do with yeah. Well, there is the carnation, though. That's, That's true. That's true, yeah. So I think it was there was a traveling salesman and the traveling salesman was being very persuasive, we'll say. Like a 50 salesman would. Right, and oh, little Missy, you know, blah, blah, blah. So anyways, the traveling salesman would have, you know, just maybe been a little bit pushy, and then she got mad at him because she's unstable mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. We've kind of come to the conclusion up here. And, you know, she's pushing him away or whatever. Oh, you know... Get out of here. Get out of here. Leave me alone. And she probably clutched his carnation and then went back to the room and fell to the ground mm-hmm. and I mean, this, created this whole subject in her head. This, or maybe she got attacked. Yeah. Who knows? This this being the 50s, I I could even imagine, you know, salesman, eh, pretty flower for the pretty lady. Here, have a carnation, you know, and that's... <laughs> or, I mean, it's also possible somebody... You know, the neighbor was worried about her exposing a lot of skin, and this isn't to like shame her for that. She, she should be able to do what you want, but yeah. especially maybe, in your trailer. Park. Maybe somebody saw her and like decided to pay her a visit and pretend to be a salesman. Again, we be. don't know because like the right. the darkness of the episode is supposed to be more about the fact that this guy strikes out in an act of vengeance against somebody who very likely had absolutely nothing to do with it. Yes, and it's. It's funny because Alfred Hitchcock says we wanted to try and title this one Death of a Salesman, but yeah, yeah, but that, that, that would not fly. But it's funny that he said that for another reason, because we don't know, in fact, that the murdered man was a salesman. We just know that he checked into a hotel. <laughs> right. Yep, he it's, just he was wearing a gray suit, probably. Yep, wearing a gray suit and then checking into a hotel. I mean, in black and white, they're kind of all gray suits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm assuming that was the case. Yeah, good episode. Good episode. Really, I I think that's a a, a great intro to kind of you know what to expect from this show. If you just mm-hmm. start right at the beginning there. Yeah, the first time I ever saw it, I remember thinking it was kind of chilling. Mm-hmm. It was it was very well done. So for the the next one, we picked the third episode um, that aired, and it was called Trigger in Leash, which is kind of a western story. And it originally aired October 16th, 1955. And this one was directed by Don Medford. And the reason why we decided to do this one was because one of the main actors in this is Darren McGavin. So 
Yes, our, if you're our listening to this Darren show McGavin. and you don't know who Darren McGavin is, then um, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, <laughs> Go back and listen to the Cold Check episode. A favorite of the Davenport Darren McGavin. Right, and uh, guest on the X-Files a few mm-hmm. times because Cold Check obviously you know, it inspired Chris Carter to do the X-Files in so many ways. And, and, so, and also he and, did a best known to a lot of people as the dad from the Christmas story. Right. But he yes. also did some made-for-TV suspense movies back in the 70s and stuff. And so he's just, uh, in addition to the Kolchak films, but um, mm-hmm. we're just big fans of Darren McGavin, and so it was exciting to see him. Plus, I thought that the um, kind of the gunfighter in the Old West premise of yes. this was neat. This this was definitely my favorite of, of the four we watched. I think they were all good. I didn't dislike any of them, but this mm-hmm. one was leaps and bounds at the head of the pack for me. Um, and not just because of Darren McGavin's accent. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, Darren yeah. McGavin plays Red, yes, who has a... It's, it's definitely an Irish accent. Yep. <laughs> it's a little bit Lucky Charms. Well, there's a crack made about him having red hair, too. Mm-hmm. This one, the story was by... Alan Von Elston, and the teleplay was done by Dick Carr. And did I mention it was directed by Don Medford? I think yeah, it is. Yes. Yeah. So in this, we have a character known as Old Maggie, played by Ellen Corby. We have Gene Barry playing a gunfighter named Del, and Darren McGavin playing another gunfighter named Red. And this takes place at Maggie's little. She's got a roadhouse cafe, basically, in the mm-hmm. Old West, and she is kind of beloved of the community. And it's this cute little rustic kitchen, and it it has a prominent feature of the shelf with this awesome cuckoo clock, this old German-style carved Black Forest cuckoo clock on the wall. Which is very connected to the plot later on, but I mean, it draws your attention even in the beginning. Right away. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was just having envy of the clock because it was so cute. Well, the whole shot, basically the whole uh, scene is all shot in the same room. And it's all shot from the one side of the room. For the most part. Aiming yeah. basically at this cuckoo clock the whole time. Yeah, it's, it's very theatrical, actually, now that you mention that. Yeah. It's basically mm-hmm. shot from one angle in one right. setting. You can make time. a stage production of this really yeah. easily. Yeah, so she she's making food for the handyman who helps her out, and then he ends up having to go on an errand. Like a typical old prospector He's type. He's a fun, fun kind of <laughs> old coot character and seems like a sweetie. And well, he goes out to get some, some wood in the sh- shed to yeah, and it's, and it's, stoke it's, up the it's fire. Pouring rain. It is. It's, it's yeah, yeah, driving rain this whole time. And while this is going on, this gunfighter named Dell that they know pretty well, I, I take it as probably a regular, mm-hmm. uh, comes in and he's acting jittery, and he's got he's got his gun in his holster ready to go. He won't take his and pistol belt off. He's there to have breakfast, but he's he's acting really agitated. And I did not write down the name of the character who is helping out Maggie in the um, like Bruce or something like yeah. that. Anyway, so her friend, the guy, the guy's the handyman, ends up having to run to town, and so it's just Maggie and Dell, and she's. He's praising her for, you know, being so cool and not asking questions. And she makes a few comments about, like, well, when you act like this, you can guess a lot of things about somebody by their behavior. And, <laughs> and just kind of gives him the side eye, like, I know you're up to no good, but mm-hmm. I'm not going to get into it. 
And then Darren McGavin's character, Red, bursts in, into the restaurant, basically. Like, he mm-hmm. comes in, and Dell jumps up, and they're just each hovering with hand over gun. Like, they're ready to ready to fight. And right, and old Maggie's in the crosshairs, basically. She's, yeah, so she's, the yeah, only reason why the gunfight doesn't happen right off the bat is because she's standing in front of Dell when Red bursts through the door. Yeah. And she tries to talk sense into them, and it's brought up, I think it was, they'd had a fight over a game of cards in the saloon in town the night before. Well, and, and Red was drinking heavily. Yeah. And, and maybe misremembering some of the stuff that happened, and Dell is like, I could have killed you, but I didn't, and you're getting all bent out of shape out of nothing, so just leave me alone. And, and Red, you know, his his honor is smirched, and he's right. got some, some wounded pride, and he's, you know... Come a calling for that. But Dell also says at a certain point, now you pushed me too far, we're going to do this. Yeah. So yeah. he doesn't necessarily want to back down either, even though he thinks that he thinks Red's being stupid. Mm-hmm. And Darren McGavin, as Red, has a questionable accent <laughs> in this. It's implied, I think, that he's Irish. And then he's got kind of like a gash or like mud over one eyebrow, like mm-hmm. like he'd been roughed up the night before. Well, because they got in a fight. Right. Yeah. Like a brawl. Right. Yeah, he says he, says he cold cocked him with a bottle, and then Dell says, no, it wasn't a bottle, I just, I just decked you one, you know. Right. But he doesn't really remember accurately because he was really sloshed yes. at the time. And so, you know, he's probably, when this is happening, the next day kind of somewhat hungover and angry, too. Yeah. I wouldn't want to get into a gunfight hungover. That sounds awful. Well, ever, but yeah. Uh, yeah. I'd say just avoid gunfight. Well, yeah, but especially when you're hungover. <laughs> okay. It's like anything. It's just worse if you're hungover. Uh. So he actually, you know, they she gets to a point where she convinces them to at least eat. Mm-hmm. But it, as we were commenting, we were all watching this together, but it ends up being kind of hilarious because... They're sitting down at the table, but neither one of them will use their, you know, their, <laughs> their, right their hand. trigger hand. Yeah. And so they've got, like, the hand And also, covering. neither one of them would look down at their plate. Right. No. So it's just, like, <laughs> eye-to-eye locked trying to eat food. Yeah, that's... The, the the episode is really interesting because they do a good job at the beginning of like building this tension, like oh these guys, you know, who's gonna draw first, and and she's in the way, and they can't draw, and the tension is building, you know, what's gonna happen, and then it gets to the the point of absurdity, and then it keeps going, and mm-hmm. I I can only think that that's intentional because it's everything else is so intentional in this episode. I don't think that that's something that happens by accident, right? Um, and it's. I, th- th- that's one of the things that just made it for me is that they're committed to this bit of like, oh, we're going to kill each other, but it's been like 10 minutes this has been going on, but it's still, oh, we're still going to do it. They go as far <laughs> as to ask her to cut their ham on their each of their plates for them <laughs> right. because they can't cut because they can't use both hands. Mm-hmm. So right. she's looking disgusted at them and shaking her head and cutting up their meat for them. Yeah. And well, all the while, the, the cuckoo clock is Right, right, right in the. Well, and this whole background. time, also, they're they're um, playing chicken with each other. They're saying like, well, because Maggie says, you know, okay, well, the first man to draw, I'll accuse him of murder because you know, right. the other one is in self defense. But the first one to pull his gun, so you know, whichever you says, you know, you're fastest. Well, that person, I'm gonna I'm gonna send to jail. They'll, they'll hang basically. Right. Um, so they're, so they're, you're both dead. Yeah, is basically what she's saying. Once one of you dies. The other one dies like a month later. Yes, by and the by the noose over yeah. a matter of stupid pride. Yes, yeah. Um, but they're but they're both playing chicken with each other this whole time, trying to. 
trying to goad the other one into draw first. You're like, oh, you know, you might draw first, but if I'm faster than you, I'll still kill you even if you drew first. Right. You know? and, and I'm off self three. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that, and that's going on this whole time too. Um, and eventually, uh, right around the time that Maggie's cutting their, <laughs> their their ham for them, they decide that when the cuckoo clock strikes noon, uh, when that little birdie comes out, that's when they're going to draw. So neither of them's going to draw first, you know, because the, the clock's going off. They're drawn at the same time, and that'll be, you know, that fate will decide at that point. Yeah. Um, which leads us kind of into the climax of the episode, which is... Which where Maggie, like, she's like, well, I'm going to put an end to this. Goes towards the cuckoo clock. He's like, don't you touch that cuckoo clock. Blah, blah, you know. Well, because yeah. they decided at the strike it's like, of news. This yeah. is like going to happen. Fire, yeah. She says, well, fine. You guys can kill each other. But let me at least get the crucifix off. Because I don't want it getting damaged. Yeah. yeah <laughs> she, she makes like, a comment about stray oh, bullets. Yeah. yeah. yeah she's worried about her crucifix. They're offended. That's, they're like, our bullets won't be, you know, right. stray. But it's like the crucifix is sitting on the shelf next to the cuckoo clock. So she's got that. And now she's clutching the crucifix. Right. She, she's praying, you know. Uh -huh. yeah. And then you just keep waiting. And you keep waiting. Yep. And you get down to it. And you get down to it. And then you realize the cuckoo clock is not cuckooing. Nope. It's In stuck. fact, it's not even ticking anymore. <laughs> And she says, well, there you have it. God intervened. <laughs> he didn't want you killing each other, so he stopped that cuckoo clock. And you both swore that neither one of you would draw until that cuckoo clock cuckooed. Yep. And so she gets them to agree on that, and they kind of just become friends at the end. Well, they, That's yeah. all it took. Yeah. They're like, ah, you know what? You're right. God took it out of neither one of us is shamed. Mm -hmm. Neither one of us. We don't have to prove which one's faster anymore. No, God said it's face. cool. Yep, it's fine. Yeah, and so they go along their merry little way, and uh, the old coot comes back right after they leave. It's like, you know who I just saw out there? <laughs> All they say in town, they're gonna be shooting each other. You know, and then and she's like, no, it's gonna be fine. And then he looks over and he goes, ah, oh, dang it, oh, dang it, Maggie, I told you don't take that thing off the shelf. If that cuckoo clock gets any tilt one way or the other, it stops working. <laughs> and she, she, she says, a, I know. Yeah, she gives a smile, oh, I know. And, uh, <laughs> and, and that's the episode. Mm -hmm. And the, I, I agree with you, Andy. I think this one was my favorite as well. I mean, not just because it was uplifting, had a, like, a happy ending, quote unquote, but like it wasn't even that it was like that happy. It was just... I loved Maggie. I loved yeah. I loved her place. I loved her demeanor. I loved how she tricked them into not killing each other. She's seems tough but fair and has a big heart and mm -hmm. and well, how could you not love somebody like that? She just the Ellen Corby plays her, she just does such a great job and she's just such an endearing character. Well at one point they reveal that her late husband was a gunfighter as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um I, I, I also, there was some, I'm not even sure what the word for this is, if it's a gag or if it's like a, a an Easter egg sort of thing, but I, I was mentioning to Drew that um, th at one point in the show, you know, they, they, there's a, a dramatic device called a ticking clock, which, you know, in a movie can be like, oh, there's a bomb that's going to go off, or oh, mm -hmm. you know, we have, this person's running out of oxygen, we got to bust them out before they run out of air, you know, and this, in this, the ticking clock is a literal ticking clock. Yeah. Uh, so the, the countdown to the climax is the cuckoo clock. And then on top of that, um, the resolution, uh, you might call it a deus ex machina, 
Uh, which, <laughs> yeah. which is a, literally translated as a god from the machine, but it's basically a resolution where God comes down and solves the problem for you, which you're kind of tricked into thinking at first. You're like, oh, whoa, you know, Jesus, she's praying to Jesus and the clock stops and, you know, oh, it seems like God really stopped that clock. And then, you know, you get the, the, the old turnaround where she's like, oh, no, I, I knew that clock would stop. And that's, um, she took fate into her own She hands. took fate into her own hands. And, you know, she, kudos to her. She did it a good job. But that, those two things also make me really wonder about, like, the kind of, the, the meta jokes that are going on in this. And I looked up the, the writer for it. And I didn't see, he wasn't a prolific writer by any means. It's Alan Von Elston. Uh-huh. Um, and I think the one thing he penned, or the two things he penned, were Paradise Express and Paradise Isle, both in 1937. Um, and I think this was the latest thing that he wrote. I don't think he wrote anything after Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to see if his other writing is this kind of like tongue-in-cheek, um, you know, self-referential sort of thing. Right. Um, or it could be possible that this was written quite a while ago in like a magazine kind of a deal sure. yeah which a lot works. of these anthology series were it was like little mm-hmm. little uh snippets from magazines mm-hmm. yeah and it could be whoever adapted the teleplay is the one that dropped all these little things in there right. but I'm, I'm curious about that and the the other thing that stood out to me is uh don medford the the director of this um directed a few western movies apparently so it's this is within his wheelhouse but one of them was universally panned and it's called one of the worst westerns ever made by some of the critics and i'm curious to go see that so i think i'll i'll try and look that movie up it's called the um the hunting party um and everyone at the time said it was just needlessly violent and there's no plot which sounds like a lot of movies so, so it's a Quar- say, tarantino film yeah did you say gene hackman was in it and gene hackman is in it yeah the uh, a lot of people complain that the cast is completely wasted in it so huh. um we will see these are all reviews you know contemporary reviews so um 40-ish years ago now um but you know i'm a western guy i i, I like me a good western and uh, the 70s were a good time for him so i think uh, i'll go back and report back and see if it's any good or not nice yeah all right, on to our third episode. Yeah, so for the third episode that we watched to discuss, we watched a, an episode, from, it was episode 17. Um, it's called The Other Sister, and it originally aired January 22nd, 1956. This one was directed by Robert Stevens, and the story was done by William De La Torre. And this is sort of an imaginary story about what might have happened a year after the Lizzie Borden trial, after Lizzie Borden was acquitted and she's back at home with her sister, Emma, and basically we're shown the Borden household and the little girl is taunting outside singing the classic Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax song Mm -hmm. and harassing them, being, being a little brat. Being a little brat. And the person who wrote the story definitely tweet some some details because we have a reporter shows up at the Borden house and is kind of forcing her way in the door and peppering Emma Borden with a bunch of questions and Emma Borden's played by Joan Loring who was in a lot of different films over the years mm-hmm. and she plays kind of this sweet innocent and it's interesting because Emma Borden was the older sister of Lizzie Borden by in, nine years in reality yeah but the roles were reversed. She's played, yeah, she's played as like a younger, sweet, innocent sister in mm-hmm. this. 
And this, uh, this reporter comes and is hounding her and asking her all these questions and then pointing out things around the house like, oh, I remember this painting from photos from the, you know, the newspaper, from the trials. And the Borden sisters did not stay in the original Borden house. They ended up, um, Lizzie bought a house uh, that she called Maplecroft that mm-hmm. was, you know, up on the hill in a different area of town where the rich folk lived because that's where she always wanted to be. And so if a reporter had tracked them down in reality, it would not have been the house where the murder took place. But this person likes to imagine that they were still in the home. And still you could, in that. Well, that. And she makes a comment about, oh, yes, yeah, you cleaned the blood off of it. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, that is not, not what things were like. So you have to suspend your disbelief if you know anything about the yeah, that, story. That ends up being critical to the plot mm-hmm. of this episode, though, that they have to be in this house. Right, yeah. right. Um, so she's harassing Emma and eventually Lizzie Borden makes an appearance and she's played by Carmen Matthews and she comes down the stairs and she says, you know, don't give interviews. I was acquitted. You know, I have nothing to say. And this woman keeps being persistent and they finally get her out the door. And while she's gone, Lizzie and Emma have a conversation in which they reveal that Emma killed the parents. Oh my god. And she wasn't really out of town that she snuck away and came back to kill the parents because she'd had enough and she pre it was premeditated that she brought an axe with her mm-hmm. and Lizzie covered up the crime because Lizzie really was out in the barn having peaches or pears. And yeah, she you know, has pear. pears, a whole yeah. Bushel of pears. And she and soup. so she <laughs> saw her sister and she hid the axe. The titular murder weapon was hidden in a hidden compartment in the fireplace. That's yes, where her dad used to stash money. Mm-hmm. And only Lizzie knew about this place, so Emma didn't even know what happened to the murder weapon. Mm-hmm. And she had to burn her apron because Emma borrowed Lizzie's apron to commit the murders, apparently, <laughs> according to this fictitious story. So it's an interesting take on the story. It's like, what if Emma had done it? Which people back in the day actually asked, well, well, also, but Emma had an airtight alibi. Yeah, what was yeah. kind of odd about it too, though, was like the whole thing was like they had never discussed this before. Up to that, point. it's yeah. been a year, yeah. and it's like a year later. The catalyst is this reporter all of a sudden being there, and it's like now she's asking questions. I, you know, I I can see that happening though, because if in it if, if we take the premise of this episode at face value and we mm-hmm. say, you know. Lizzie, everybody thinks Lizzie did it. Lizzie knows Emma did it. So Lizzie knows that Emma is capable of murder and that Lizzie also, like, took the rap in the public heat for it. If I was Lizzie, I'd be like, you know, stay the course. Things are fine. No need to talk about this. It's over and done with. I'm free. Nobody knows my sister did it. Let's just move on. Um, And then this reporter comes in who... I would have starts dredging up old stuff. I would have just kept the door locked, you know, if that would the this reporter leaves and then comes back. And if I'd, you know, if I'd kicked her out once, I'd be like, you stay outside. You're not coming back in here to find the axe that we're talking about on our kitchen table. Well, and when the reporter leaves and then she does come back, in the meantime, while the two sisters are talking about this. Emma starts to get paranoid and thinks that she needs to do away with Lizzie. So she gets her hands <laughs> on the so axe, good. even though Lizzie was the one who covered up the crime. She thinks. Well, she she's needs going to... upstairs to re kill the mother. Oh, yeah, she, right. She starts, right. She starts hearing yeah. the mother upstairs. Right. I forgot about that. And now she, she, does, ha- yeah. she has the axe in her hand. And mm-hmm. She's like, oh, well, I have to go kill her. 
Because it's just like flashbacks. Once she gets the axe in her hand, she just goes on a murder spree. Well, you know? I remember you saying when we were watching it, like, why doesn't Lizzie just let her go whack up a pillow? Right. Or it's like she's going upstairs to go murder an imaginary woman. Just let her yeah, go. Just let her do it. It's fine. You're going to, like, lose a pillow or something. Big deal. <laughs> and go, then, you, and then you're get rich rid of the now. Axe. Go buy a, another pillow. Yeah. But yeah, so, so the reporter comes back in the midst of them you know, in this heated moment where Emma's thinking she needs to kill Lizzie now, too. Yeah. And basically, she gets the axe away from Emma and then tries to hide the axe under a newspaper. She, yeah, on yeah, the kitchen she, table. She hides then, the axe by putting it on the kitchen table and covering it with a newspaper. Yeah. and then, Not putting it back where it was, <laughs> where it stayed hidden for a year. Investigators couldn't find it. Yep. Reporters couldn't find it. You know, the police... Every no one could find this axe in its special little hiding spot, but nope, don't hide it there. Just throw an old newspaper over it. I know, in, in in a sitcom esque series of events, the reporter barges in and is asking for something to write on, and wants to write on the table, and then oh, oh is this is this the old Herald? I think I used to know somebody who wrote for <gasps> the axe. Well, and her reason for coming back is that the her editor will kill her if she doesn't get a byline or something. Or something. Or, there was like a, a, a quote. Anyway, she just. I don't know. She's it just was a pushy reporter. So obnoxious. Yeah, like, she was That's in not the, a reason to come back. If she was in the first sketch, the girl would have taken her lapel pin and then <laughs> had her murdered later by her husband. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Ooh, I, it was her. That's an interesting... How would that episode have gone in the 50s if it had been a, a female attacker in the first episode? Like, would her husband uh, have just gone yeah. out and killed somebody? So, I don't know. Oh. Yeah, I, it, anyway, so this one, yeah. this one's a little bit... I was actually a little disappointed mm-hmm. in this one. I thought it was a little bit silly. Yeah. And not that well, they would show you killing on television, but characters do die in episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Oh, like, yeah. there is oh, yeah. murder in it all the I time. I mean, the very first episode, they mm-hmm. murder and a guy. So it's usually, like, a dark twist or something. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that Lizzie was going to have to kill the reporter to yeah. quiet her up because she ushers Emma out the door. Emma had already bought a train ticket and right. was supposed to go visit family or friends out of town. And move, and then decides to move there permanently. Right. Because anyway, then there would have been a twist, like she didn't kill her parents, but then she did she get killed. I thought, I yeah. thought that, I thought that was where they were going with Me it. Too. But yeah. um, she ends up just chasing off the reporter with an axe and scaring her half to death and getting her out the door and basically saying, "If you print anything, I'm going to sue you." Yeah. Right. Which is what she should have said the first time. She should have said, "Get off my property." One of my yeah. favorite parts, though, is when the reporter is just like really getting on her, and she's like, she's "Like, just give me a story. Just give me, just you, you killed him, right? Just tell me you killed him. You've already been acquitted. They can't charge you for the murders now. You just tell me <laughs> you murdered him. It'll be great." It'll sell so many newspapers. I'll get rich and famous. Yeah, also, this was in an era in which people would just show up at someone's home and lynch them and, you know, string them up. And they would have been way less likely to do that to a woman. But if it came out that she really did do it and got away with it, I mean, I don't know. They could have burned her house down or something. Yep, all kinds of things. Bad things Mm -hmm. would have happened. So, yeah, so it kind of, the ending is kind of weak and... I, I was honestly was, hoping that that reporter was going to die before the end of the episode. She He's was so terrible. obnoxious. Yeah, and it was 
it was just kind of weak and also the premise was bothering me because it went it flew in the face of a lot of things that we know as fact about how the Borden sisters lived post the trial. Yeah. So it was We've we've delved into the Borden story too many times and know too many facts about it to mm. be able to watch like such disregard for the yeah. right and if you if you haven't already we in early 2020 we did an episode on the 1972 television movie starring elizabeth montgomery about lizzie borden which is excellent um i mean the episode's good too but the, <laughs> but the, it's a great I, I think it's a really great movie version of the story mm. and Elizabeth Montgomery is so good in it, and it was Val's first episode with us. It was. That was, so, that was the was that pre-pandemic. It was. Yeah. It was. And that was a lot of fun, and that's one of the episodes I'm really proud of that we did, and it was great because it was Val's first time on, and she really enjoyed being part of it. So if you haven't checked that one out and you like Lizzie Borden, you're interested in that story, please go check out that past episode from 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Lizzie Borden Took an Axe. hear all about our theories of who really did it. Yeah. yeah. Which wow. is Maggie. Cold mutton soup. Well, I'll say, so a note <laughs> about... Telling you it's a Maggie. A note about Maggie. <laughs> something that's interesting about this episode, another thing besides the subject matter that made me interested in it was that Pat Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock's daughter, is in this, and she plays their um, their maid Maggie. Although it's explained Margaret. Margaret, but they call her Maggie, which is what they called the actual maid in real life. Even though the maid's name was not Margaret was not, right. or Maggie, yeah, right. um, it was the name of a former maid that they just so like. All maids are called when Maggie they were now. Little girls, they had a maid, and the maid's name was Maggie. And so because they're little girls, they just started thinking maids were all called Maggie. And because they were rich and hiring people and they looked down upon them because they were just servants, Mm -hmm. they just called them all Maggie. Because that was the name they were accustomed to, I guess. Yeah. And that's why Maggie murdered them. Right. That's gotta be it. Uh, Anyway, she... It's so weird, though, that they chose to name the maid Maggie in this and have her actually be a Margaret and then explain that she is a newer maid. No, she's not the same maid. Yeah. She just has the same name. She was not the maid that was present during the time of the Borden's murder. one of the few things that was actually historically accurate in this episode. But, well, just the (laughs) name. Was the fact that they call all maids Maggie. Yeah. But her name, but they were implying that she really was a Margaret. Like, it wasn't that they were calling her Maggie. They were saying, oh, Maggie slash Margaret. Right. But she was played by Pat Hitchcock and... Pat Hitchcock is adorable, and I and she's in several episodes of the Alfred Hitchcock Presents television show, and I always like it when I see her in things. And she passed away last year, so R.I.P. Pat Hitchcock. She just she's just somebody that I always enjoyed seeing when she pops up in things. So that was another draw for me in this. Although we don't get nearly enough of her, she's only in it for the very beginning. But yeah, I actually would say I mean I don't want to get too far ahead because we have one more segment or one more episode to talk about, but. I want to call them the segments because they're kind of shorter. So I keep thinking of the story segments in my head, like when we talk about Night Gallery. Yeah. But yeah. each one is a complete episode. They were just, without commercials, you get like 20 minutes. Yeah, right. So on, on the DVD set that we have. Yeah, I think this was maybe my least favorite. It was definitely the weakest one. I still thought it was fun because it was a, a neat little premise. And the 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 actresses who played the Borden sisters, I think, did really good jobs. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it starts out, Lizzie's all 
stern and she's, you know, acting tough and Emma's a little bit, you know, oh no, I'm so affected and no, no. And then, but then, you know, it's like, oh no, Emma's the crazy one and Lizzie's, you know, looking out for her sisters. I thought it was fun. It was well enough acted if it was kind of a, a, a fanciful premise. Sure. I Honestly, agree if I that the acting knew, was good. If I knew less of the actual Borden story, yeah, I yeah. probably could have enjoyed it more. Same. But having watched way too many Lizzie Borden things mm-hmm. and documentaries, and I feel like we've listened to a couple of podcasts about the Bordens as well at this it's, point. You know, it might be possible that in the 50s when this aired that not as many people had access to the whole story or maybe not well, as much was written Well, and there wasn't yeah, movies made about it. Everyone just knew the poem. Yeah, right, or you, you know. could, if you really wanted to, you could probably go to the library and look at old microfiche of yeah. newspapers of the trial. But there wasn't... I think I think it's grown in popularity since this episode mm. aired. It's passed into the realm of legend, as they say. Yes, you know? definitely. Yeah. Well, on to the fourth. All right. So our fourth, our fourth one is the episode, and so died Ria Bochinska, which originally aired February twelfth, nineteen fifty six. This one was directed by Robert Stevenson, who. Directed a lot of amazing things. Yeah, was a, a prolific director, and I, I I am certain minted Disney, the Walt Disney Company, a mint because this guy directed Old Yeller, Darby O'Gill, Mary Poppins, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, The Love Bug, Blackbeard's Ghost, That Darn Cat. I mean, the list goes on. It, incredible. Some of the um, best mid-century live-action Disney that ever was. Yes, I basically think, a majority of Allison's favorite Disney. Films. Well, Mary Poppins is a beloved classic for a reason. Yes, but I also am a huge fan of Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Yeah, Angela Lansbury as a witch fighting Nazis, some of the best things ever. <laughs> if you don't agree with me, I'll fight you. Yeah, I, I, I honestly think uh, Bedknobs and Broomsticks is probably like peak. Dis- live action Disney, and I, I, I don't, I won't say it's better than Mary Poppins, but I will say they're on the same tier. You know, they are both great films, uh, and I think it's safe to say that Robert Stevenson is a great filmmaker because he was involved in both of those and this episode, which I really enjoyed. That's our cat. Oh, that's yeah. a childhood favorite. I mean, I grew up adoring Haley Mills, but I also just love uh, Dean Jones and things. He was kind of mm-hmm. a workhorse for Disney. Yeah. And he did so many fun movies. And he's also in Blackbeard's Ghost and Blackbeard's Ghost starring Peter Ustinov. If you have not seen that and you have Disney Plus and you want a fun pirate story, check that one out. Yeah. It's fun great. mid-century modern yeah. pirate yeah. ghost story. And also, yeah. that's one of those ones, there's a lot of things when you look at things from that era, sometimes there's cringy moments and inappropriate cultural <laughs> depictions and things that Disney now has to put warning labels on and I could be remembering incorrectly but I honestly think that Blackbeard's Ghost was one of those that was a lot more I mean there's it holds up better yeah, <laughs> there's, not, there's, there, there's no rapey pirates of the Caribbean pirates in this. no not at all no it's it's good fun I mean there is some drunk driving jokes so yeah. I guess if you're offended by that <laughs> there's a few things anyway yeah, but it's still so, but I honestly think you know if you enjoy live action Disney and you haven't seen that one, that's, that's some, one I recommend. Definitely some toxic male uh, stereotyping. Oh, sure. You know, 
And that darn cat is one of my favorite scenes in a movie ever, which is when the cat gets between the projector and the screen at a drive-in and you're watching a surf movie and suddenly there's a giant cat silhouette batting at a moth and then a man crawling after the cat. It's just, it made me laugh so hard as a child and it still makes me laugh. And so maybe that's a reflection on how much I've matured over the years, but I still really enjoy that one. Yeah. This is a, a very different in tone than all of those. This has some some of the whimsy, I think, that some of those movies did. Uh, this is uh, based on a Ray Bradbury story. Yeah. And if you are familiar at all with uh, the golden age of science fiction in English or the Twilight Zone or any of that stuff, you'll know who Ray Bradbury is, one of my favorite authors. An interesting story, very Bradbury-esque in terms of what's going on in it. Right. There's actually a, there's an 80s television show based on Ray Bradbury's stories, the Ray Bradbury Theater, which at some point we will sit down with a few episodes and yes, cover that in absolutely. the future. But the other awesome thing about this episode is who stars in it. Oh, yeah. This stars Claude Rains as a seasoned ventriloquist act and um, or as a ventriloquist performer and Claude Rains was an iconic actor back in the day. Mm -hmm. He was the Invisible Man. He was in Casablanca. He played the Wolfman in 1941. And, you know, he just, if you love classic horror, not that Casablanca is classic horror. I don't know, maybe it depends (laughs) on who you ask. But he, he, I mean, he was an Invisible Man, you know? That's like one of those iconic movie monsters Mm -hmm. from back in the day. And not only does it have him as our main character, it has... Charles Bronson as a chiseled detective investigating yeah. a murder. I, I thought he would have been too young uh, to be in this movie, but Charles Bronson was apparently a bit older than I than I'd realized originally. And I was like, that looks a lot like Charles Bronson. We were all saying that, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was like, who is that guy? And it turns out it was Charles Bronson. It's Charles Bronson. So we're the back. Charles Bronson-y looking guy was Charles. Was, that's kind of like when we watched the uh, Outer Limits episode and we're like, that guy looks a lot like Emilio Estevez. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, it like, like, it looks like Emilio Estevez, like, looks kind of now, and it turned out it was Martin Sheen. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Like, oh, it's Emilio Estevez Sr. Mm-hmm. So this uh, this episode is about, as I said, a ventriloquist performer, and um, his, basically, all the people that sort of perform with him at this theater, and we're backstage, and some of the performers head downstairs and discover a body, the body of a juggler who'd been kind of on again, off again, performing at this place. And Charles Bronson's detective character is called in to investigate. And people think he had issues with the ventriloquist performer and his wife, who was his assistant and also seemingly like she had a wandering eye and was disgruntled. And, um, so we, we see Charles Bronson interviewing everybody extensively, trying to get behind the story of who knew this juggler and what was he doing and was he blackmailing people? It sounded like he was. Mm-hmm. And all the while, the wooden marionette, Rhea Buczynska, is part of the interview because... Yeah, she's the... the well, it starts out that she's talking from inside her of box and Charles Bronson's like, demanding ah. to be to be let out, let out yeah. so she can be involved leave, in this interview. Uh, leave, leave your act on the stage, man. I don't want to talk to your dummy. But it's funny because she is compelled to tell the truth and once Charles Bronson 
realizes he's not going to get the truth out anybody of else. anybody except for mm. Rhea Buchinska. So he has to start talking to her and he finding out finding yeah. out what she knows. And she knows quite a she lot. Knows quite she a knows lot. it all. Yeah, and there's, uh, yeah, the, the dummy reveals that there's, the, first of all, the wife and his, is it his manager? I think it's the manager. It's the, the manager. They're having an affair. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ventriloquist knows about it. And I... I didn't understand why she told him to stop laughing, uh, because there's, like, uh, Charles Bronson asked the ventriloquist, like, oh, did you know that they're having an affair? And he's like, oh, yes, yes, I did know. <laughs> and then Rhea Bushenska says, you know, you, oh, you shouldn't laugh about that. And I'm like, well, why not? This is, this is absurd. What's going on here? And we learned that at one time the ventriloquist had an assistant who he was very much in love with who mysteriously disappeared. Mm. And... He used to perform with a puppet named Sweet William at this time. Oh, Sweet William. And after the disappearance of his beautiful assistant, he was inspired to create Rhea Buchenska, who he, we learned, he carved her himself and Mm -hmm. lovingly painted her and made her in the likeness of this assistant. And it almost seems like he somehow channeled like a piece of this woman's essence because her personality is... Well, then he said that her hand moved, you know, yeah. and then, when, like, she became alive. Yeah, and he, he describes the process of making her as being this, like, like trance-like state that he was in for months at a time, where he was carving this very intricate, and it's a good-looking ventriloquist dummy. It is, um, I, I mentioned this, it's probably the least creepy ventriloquist dummy I've ever seen on stage. I had that feeling, Andy, Andy knows about creepy ventriloquist dummies. I do know about dummies. creepy ventriloquist As we've talked about it's before on the show. still up there. <laughs> The dummy that never comes out. Nope, because you know, like Mike says, I'm not going to be the one to fuck with a dead man's ventriloquist dummy. And if you if you want to hear more about Andy sharing his apartment with his roommates and his additional ventriloquist dummy roommate, you can mm-hmm. hear more about that in our Twilight Zone: A Trip to the Uncanny Valley episode from last year. Yeah. But this is yeah, I agree with you. Like she's very uncanny because she is like a port, like a living portrait because she moves and talks, but she's very realistic looking, but she's also very beautiful right. and her it's personality. Almost like she's cast from like an actual person's face. Yeah. Yeah. And she has a really regal persona, like a very gentle, very graceful persona. And she's dressed really elegantly. So there's really nothing off putting about her other than the fact that she seems almost human, Yeah, but she doesn't seem sinister, <laughs> you know, like, no, this Some is, kind of slappy that's coming to get you. Yeah, I was gonna say if you if you had this episode on one end of the spectrum and you had the the Anthony Hopkins movie Magic on the other, you know, I yeah, think that's different. like that's that's about as creepy as a dummy gets, if you ask me. Um, but yeah, very uh, a very like you said, regal, good personality from mm-hmm. for Um and she. I'm not sure if that's like. Uh, her spirit is compelled to tell only the truth, or if it's his guilty conscience that's doing that, or it's like it's hard to say. It is, and I like that. There's a lot of mystery in this episode. There's a lot of like, oh, well, what happened to the original woman? Um, clearly, this guy loved her, and he only married his current wife after she left the act. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the wife is disgruntled because you know he's always working on his act. He's always talking to that damn doll. You know, he never has any time for me. Um, so Apparently the doll gets a lovely wardrobe and she doesn't get any money for anything. She spends hundreds yeah. of dollars on this doll's wardrobe. Yep. So it, 
and it's revealed that the juggler was a blackmailer, but he was not harassing him about any affairs between any of the people. Mm-hmm. He wanted to expose and ridicule the ventriloquist's love for his doll. Yes, and so. it's um, the ventriloquist up to this point has been denying fervently that he even knew who this juggler was. Right. Um, but it comes out uh, through some detective work that uh, Charles Bronson figures out this juggler worked with the ventriloquist in the past and they knew each other and they had some dirt on him. Right. And so he, the ventriloquist... What is his name? It's um, Fabian. Fabian. Fabian is... Finally, he just... It's like the end of every... Uh, murder she wrote monk uh any detective yeah, story where they're like all right you got me yeah. and he lays it all out there <laughs> and tells it you know like it is and then that's when um she starts talking back to him about like how she can't love a man who would kill and everything mm-hmm. and she's going away now yeah and then she just stops talking stops moving and then she like closes her eyes yeah. and, and like and her spirit he disappears. Just like breaks down because now she's gone. She's gone. And he says, I can't find her anymore. Right. And it's like, this actually was my favorite of mm-hmm. the four. And it's because it had that weird, creepy, like, what's really going on here? And yeah. I kind of feel like what was going on was this woman probably died a while back mm-hmm. and then he over distraught about it you know was creating this likeness of her and he spent so much time and put so much of his energy into it that he like brought her back yeah from the netherworld into this dummy mm-hmm. and then she was good with it like yeah. she's like okay like going with it but now that he's a murderer she can't live with him and she can't live you know as a dummy any other way. Yeah. So she just goes back to the netherworld and he's lost her again. And it's like a really sad story in the end. It is. And I I, I think I like that theory too because it also says that like she obviously loved him too because otherwise she wouldn't stick around as a dummy to hang out with this guy. Um, But that's, it's, I, I was just thinking about this, but it's it's really interesting. I think this might be the only place that maybe like mental health issues got kind of portrayed in pop culture in the fifties was these like macabre murder mystery thriller shows. Because of these two episodes that we just kind of pulled out of a hat, there's two of them that deal with like mental health and like, you know, maybe uh like trauma and grief and how people cope with stuff. Um, and I can't think of another example of media from this time period that even mentions, you know, like, oh, well, she's hysterical. It's, you know, whatever. Um, just kind of brushes it off. Yeah. Um, these people are a lot more complex and these are, you know, these end up being maybe the bad guys, quote unquote, for these episodes, but it's kind of interesting to look at them. Um, and this episode specifically, as we're talking about it, I feel like this could have been almost like the first episode of Twin Peaks where like, oh, this body shows up and there's this weird guy with a ventriloquist on and there's all these disgruntled weird actor types that all have different stories and they're all sleeping with each other. And, you know, it could have easily spun off into a weird series from there. I mean, that is a little bit log lady. Yeah, very much. Oh, yeah, but the log would never leave the log lady. No. The log lady would never would murder never anyone. Would never murder <laughs> Um... But yeah, so it's uh, I, I agree. This is a this is a very good and interesting episode, and I I like that the catalyst for the murder in this is that 
the Fabian, the ventriloquist, is just afraid that people will laugh at him for loving someone that he does. And it's, you know, it's a doll in this case, but that's that's the inciting incident. Um, well, I mean, I, I'm not someone who particularly finds ventriloquism super entertaining. Like, I think it's an interesting skill to have, but I've never... Again, I find a lot of the dummies really off-putting. But I also am a sculptor, and mm-hmm. I occasionally make dolls, and they're usually fantasy-based. But I can understand how, when you lovingly create something, how you can connect to it, and it feels like it has a life outside of its own. Yeah. And so I, I really connected with that aspect of, like, that he made this beautiful, beautiful doll, and she kind of had her own essence. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really sweet. And so, yeah, I really I like this episode a lot yeah, as well. Yeah, very good. Um, and like I said, there's a lot of the, a lot of the dialogue has some of the whimsy that you see in some of those later Disney movies, some of, the, the, some of that classic Ray Bradbury, like funny, but kind of dark writing. It's, it's just mm-hmm. good all around. Um, and I was not expecting something like that from this series. Um, I was expecting, you know, like psycho kind of stuff. Right. Um, this yeah. is very much the most Twilight zone yeah. kind of episode right. of before we watch. Well, because even... Even in the story of the gunfighters, the thing that stopped the clock wasn't divine intervention. It was a crafty, crafty older lady who yeah. needed to convince these guys to not kill kill themselves. Mm-hmm. And you could look at that as divine intervention too, just because she kicked ass and she was there to to help and clever, and she was god fearing. The Lord helps but, those who help themselves, right? Yeah. Like she seemed like a prime example of that, but she. She intervened physically herself. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a divine, an actual divine intervention with the clock. It was yeah. a, it was a Maggie ex machina. Yeah, it was yes. another. <laughs> but old Maggie, who you suspect probably at one time was just Maggie, and before that, probably young Maggie. Young Maggie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you have this one lends itself the most to potentially having a supernatural element to it because right. we're yeah. not really given the sense that this man has like a part of his psyche that he can't contend with or some kind of split self. Yeah, there's no, like, like, it doesn't feel like that right. at all, which is often a theme that comes up in a ventriloquist dummy story, mm-hmm. especially if it's supposed to be unsettling. Um, but whereas this one wasn't unsettling, it was more just a little sad. Yeah. You know? It was... Yeah. I mean, unless I guess you could say that during his trance of sculpting the dummy, he unlocked something in his mind and created mm-hmm. her yeah. in his own mind and separated that off. And that's Which is possible. And it, then it she is. could, in his own mind, as a separate person, decide to leave him mm-hmm. because he's a murdering jerk. Yes. But I think it leaves it open-ended, which is cool, and and I think... It leaves you wondering. The, yeah. I mean, I've, it's been a while since I've seen a lot of Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes, but over the years, my memories of ones that I've watched, it was always a lot more like a mystery or pulp-type story where it was very grounded in what we can see and feel. And, yeah. and if somebody is having a supernatural experience, it's usually somebody's gaslighting them or they're having a psychotic break and it's spilled out for you. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's just moments of tension in the world mm-hmm. is basically what every episode is. It's yeah. like, this is this person's moment of tension in their life. This mm-hmm. is this person's moment. Or this is this person's breaking point. This yeah. is this person's 
It's that one moment over and over again. Well, did anybody have anything else they wanted to say about this episode or the series as a whole? No, it's um, it's better than I was expecting, and I, you know, I had pretty high expectations because I know who Alfred Hitchcock is. You know, I, I think he comes by that uh, master of suspense moniker. Honestly, you know, that's that is not hyperbole. Um, and even if you know, like the audiences these days are a bit more jaded when it comes to like gore and stuff like that. But in terms of building suspense up in a scene, mm-hmm. he's still very good at it. Um, well, and I think bomb under the table. I think if you yeah. if you like more theatrical types of performances and you like classic television, then and you haven't seen this, then I would really recommend it. Especially if you like other things like you know the original run of the Twilight Zone. I think mm-hmm. this would be a natural second show to watch. But there's so many episodes, and, and I think it'd be worth our while down the road to revisit this again and pick out some more episodes to cover, because I, I for one, really do enjoy this series, and I love the little bits at the beginning and ends with Alfred oh, Hitchcock yeah. for each episode. <laughs> and it's, it's good the, stuff. In the Lizzie Borden one, he makes a joke about, like, you know, not hitting the table when you're angry. You just go out and smack that kid and tell him to shut up. <laughs> wow. Calm down, Alfred Hitchcock. So I guess you know the moral of the story was back in the day, didn't don't sing songs outside Alfred Hitchcock's house. Yeah, if he doesn't like them, he's gonna come for you. Yeah. Yeah, there was some very dark, very dry humor. Child abuse jokes. <laughs> well, that was just Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah he just, liked to make the dark comments. Yeah, like his movies weren't always comedic. You know, there's a very I mean, it's every once in a while, like, his scenes are usually the comedic ones, his little appearances, but, like, there's not a lot of comedy in Alfred Hitchcock movies, but Alfred Hitchcock in interviews and Alfred Hitchcock anytime he's just talking about things, it's just, like, always a joke. Mm -hmm. Every thing ends in a joke or begins with a joke and sometimes has a joke in the middle as well, you know? Yeah. He he loved the good gallows humor. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I, I I recommend it. And if you're if you're a fan of Hitchcock, you might not be aware that there is a Mel Brooks parody called High Anxiety. Oh, that's great. Which is also great if you yeah. you have to be familiar with Hitchcock, specifically like Vertigo and uh, Psycho, North by Northwest. I think are the big ones that it draws from. But uh, if you're familiar with Hitchcock at all, even through this, you can go and watch that uh, that Mel Brooks movie. Um, it hold, uh, not all of Mel Brooks movies hold up very well, but I think High Anxiety does because you know Hitchcock is timeless. It's a fun one. Yeah. It's definitely a fun movie. Yeah, and if you're a fan of the birds, but you're also a fan of the inconvenient truth, there's oh, a movie no. out there called oh, Birdemic. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's a classic. <laughs> Drew Drew's now decided to troll our listeners rather, no, rather no, than no, you should watch Birdemic. It's great, <laughs> isn't it called Birdemic Shock and Awe or something? Like it has like a second title. It does have a second title, yeah, really? Yeah. Wow, I'm in shock and awe about that. Well, but it does have a great song in it though. It's hanging out, out hanging out, out, hanging out with, with my family. family, and we can't say any more of it or we might get sued. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh no i hope that's a thing <laughs> anyway i hope anyway, that guy's getting royalties we, yeah me too 
He's it's the best honestly part of that the best. Yeah, it is the best part of that movie. I. <laughs> I want to if you're thank, gonna watch Birdemic, watch the Rift Tracks version. I want to thank everyone for listening and hopefully continuing to listen after all that. Yeah, we are going to have some fun guests. I think for our next episode, I don't want to ruin the total surprise of that. But uh, Drew, Andy, and myself, uh, Val will still be on hiatus, but we're gonna have a couple guests with us next time, and we are gonna be covering a fun, ridiculous show known as Buck Rogers in the 25th century. And I'm very excited because we ended 2021 in late 70s, low-budget space, and we're going back to late 70s, low-budget space. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. I'm excited about that. Space disco. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of, who knows what'll happen in 2022, because anything could happen. Mm -hmm. Oh. But I would like to carry the intentional energy of 70s space disco into this year. Yeah, forward momentum. That's all it takes. <laughs> Let's have a little Ooh. fun. And some, yeah, we've got some exciting stuff in the hopper. I think 2022 for the Davenport's going to be a good year. Yeah, um, yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree. If we're able to even do half of what we want to do, I think it'll be a good year. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. again, thanks for listening, and we hope your new year is off to a good start, and that you will join us next time on Haunted Davenport. Bye. <laughs> All right. Hey.
when you go talk to Melvin, he's making out at the pig. So little Susan hears the music, and she starts to grip And all the fellas jump up to see how she is moving. Just hanging out, hanging out. Hang out with the family to be having ourselves a party. We just hang out, hang out, hang out with the Yeah, <laughs> 